But this morning, Christ is the end of the law. The verse will say, for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're finishing up Exodus 20. So if you're able, would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? Picking up the text in Exodus 20, verse 18. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. All the people, Exodus 20, 18, perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I've spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. And I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up my, by my steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Father, thank you for your living word. Would you give us understanding? Would you help us to have soft hearts to your voice? We want to hear your voice. And you have spoken through your word and you've spoken through your son in these last days. And we want to know your voice, the voice of our shepherd, and follow you. May you be pleased with the way we divide the text and the way we respond to it. May you be glorified. May you encourage faith in this room. May you bless those who are watching via live stream. And would you be glorified in our midst, Father? That's our prayer. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Christ is the end of the law. This is a communion Sunday, so we'll be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the message we pick it up at verse 18 with a link to the Ten Commandments. We've just seen the final commandment in verse 17, that of coveting. And all the people, we come back now to the scenes of Sinai, which were happening all along. All the people perceived, Exodus 20, verse 18. If you have an ESV, they saw, the New King James says, they witnessed the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, this idea of standing at a distance will be repeated in verse 21. The idea of worship, just in a general definition, worship speaks of worthiness, the worthiness of God to be worshiped. But worship literally means to draw near. We draw near to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that the people are standing at a distance. Now, in Exodus 19, God told Moses, I want you to put bound, boundaries up. I don't want anybody to cross the boundaries or even touch the mountain lest they die. This was the holiness of God on display. Remember, God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But the displays that you're seeing of what's called theophany by scholars are associated signs of God's presence. Lightning, thunder, smoke, power, trumpet blasting, 
the, uh, we find out in other scriptures that the law was given among myriads of angels and angels shine with the glory of God. So this incredible scene. And the people didn't really need the warning because they were backpedaling at the awesome display of power that they saw up on the mountain. God had come down. He had descended on the mountain in mighty power. And, you know, many people today, many of our modern minds don't understand that this is who God is. Our God, the end of Hebrews 12 says, is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This notion that God is some bearded old man at a desk up somewhere in the yonder heavens is just not what the Bible teaches. Our God is awesome in power. That's why when you read God creating the world, the world by the word of his power, God saying, let there be light and there was light, this is the being that we are dealing with here. The mighty God of the universe. The God who holds the universe together by the word of his power. Not only did he make it, he holds it together. Spurgeon believed that Sinai was a scene of a foretaste of what the world is going to experience at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Called the day of the Lord. These signs will be seen at the final judgment. That is lightning and thunder and power. In fact, people are depicted in Revelation 6 as saying something like this. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb for the, day, the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I think that's Revelation 6, 17. And so they're going to be hiding in the caves and the rock from the splendor of this God. And this is the God that many people say, I just wish that God would come down and speak to us. Well, God has spoken. But I'm not sure that most people understand that without Jesus Christ's mediating ministry, this is the God that people will face without Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews draws this imagery of two mountains. One is Sinai, one is Zion. And he says, you've not come to this mountain that's quaking and filled with all these incredible signs of judgment. You've come to Zion, to the, the mountain of God, to the city of uh, angels and, and, and righteous men made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. So we do have a choice which way we want to go. Do we want to face the God of law or the God of grace? <laughs> I'll take all the grace that I can get, especially in light of this scene. Amen. Nobody's going to come up to the God of the Bible and have a conversation about all their questions that they had. Let me tell you something, God. It's just going to be one, and that's it. It's over, right? So this is the scene, and the people of God are backpedaling. They are trembling, look at the verse, and standing at a distance. That's the end of verse 18, with all of these sounds and uh, manifestations one writer says it this way. He says, by the time he was finishing, finished God, giving the law, that is God, the precautions of bar, boundaries or the uh, not crossing over the boundaries hardly seemed necessary. No one wanted to go even near to these manifestations. And they're going to say to Moses, you talk to him and tell us what he says. We don't, we don't want to talk to him, right? You go first. Remember the famous scene in the Indiana Jones movie? They finally have dug up the place where the Ark of the Covenant is and Indiana's with his sidekick and they look down and the floor seems to be moving. And he says to Indiana, asps, 
very dangerous. You go first. <laughs> and you know how much, if you are a fan of Indiana Jones, how much he loves snakes, right? He hated snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Well, here the people are saying, you go first. You go talk to him. It's too loud. It's too much. We can't handle it. And whenever the uh, voice of God is depicted, especially in judgment passages, it has the idea of ear-deafening noise, sensory overload. These signs will reappear at the final judgment, but here they are prophetic of the day of judgment. And just a few, I, I could give you five pages of verses right now, but I'm just going to give you just a few. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 8, arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, 1 Kings 19, I'm reading beginning in verse 8. He went 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's going to be also known as Sinai, same mountain. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the son of the uh, sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing wind. Now, there are people that will say that God was not found in all the uh, judgment manifestations, but he was found in a still, small voice or in a gentle blowing wind. And there is a case to be made that when the Lord wants to lead us, his voice is gentle. Isaiah 30 verse 21 says there will be a voice behind you speaking into your ear telling you whether to go to the left or to the right. But any judgment passages that I can find in my Bible that have to do with the voice of God depict the voice of God as ear-shattering, thunderous, a tumult of waters. Just a sampling. Psalm 18, 13 says, The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. The channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. Psalm 46 uh, verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He, God, raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Psalm 68:33 says, To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice a mighty voice. Uh, back in uh, Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And his wrath, at his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Verse 13, Jeremiah 10. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for rain, for the rain brings out the wind from his storehouses. 
Jeremiah 25, 29 says, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. Verses in the book of Joel talk about God, his thunderous voice, and that he roars from Zion like a mighty lion. And all God's people said, Roar! Yeah! This is who our God is. Powerful and mighty. Awesome is his name. And the people of Israel, when they see how powerful God is, they sense their need for mediation. They know they need a mediator, and that is the point. Moses becomes a type of Christ, the ultimate mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man or the God-man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, right? So Moses is now going to mediate for the people, and this is going to speak to us about the gospel. So they said to Moses, 19, speak to us yourself. You speak to us, another version has it, and the you is emphatic. We want to hear from you. Please tell God don't speak anymore. And we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think the modern mind understands God to be this way. If we were to stand before this God without mediation, without being found in the covering of the righteousness of Christ, we're in deep trouble. We just studied the Ten Commandments. We studied their depth. We studied how they have to do with matters, not just of external behavior, matters of the heart. We talked about how it judges the thoughts and intents of our mind, what we fail to do. Just one of the commandments puts me in the dust before God, amen, let alone 10 of them. The law is a tutor, a schoolmaster to drive me to the foot of the cross at Calvary, to to stand under the shed blood of Jesus, to know I need help, I need mediation. Ray Comfort puts it this way. He's evangelizing out in the streets and he says, we gotta give law to the proud and grace to the humble. Because there are many people in our culture who are going to end up separated from God because they suffer from an endemic disease called good person syndrome. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You talk to people and they will say, well, I'm a good person. I, I haven't murdered anybody yet. <laughs> I haven't, you know. And they'll, they'll begin to talk about their goodness, but they don't understand the depth of the law. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And without mediation, we're in deep trouble. Because we're going to face this God of Sinai without that help. But the good news is that help has come. But they sense their need. I think they sense already that they can't keep the commandments, haven't kept the commandments, probably won't be able to keep the commandments. And they also sense the holiness of God. Lest we die. That's the end of verse 19. 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 6 puts it this way. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And they can understand. They're fearful. And Moses said to the people, look at 20, don't be afraid. God has come in order to test you. That's the Hebrew word nasa, N-A-S-A. God had tested them at the waters of Meribah. He tested them in the giving of the manna, whether they would walk in his command just to pick up one day's worth of manna, one day at a time, except for the Sabbath. Um, Genesis 22.1 says God tested Abraham. And he, he says he's come to test you. Don't be afraid. In order that the fear of him, of God, may remain with you so that you what? 
that you may not sin. Essentially, Moses says, let this day be etched forever in your mind. And who could forget this scene? If you were standing at the bottom of this mountain, could you ever forget this scene? How many of you can remember the first time you really understood the holiness of God and how sinful you really are? Can you remember the first time that you realized why you need a Savior? Not just for life improvement, not just because, you know, uh, Jesus can help you out a little bit. No, you need a Savior. And Moses is saying to the people, look, from this day forward, understand that anytime you're tempted to sin against this God, let the fear of him keep you from sin. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, 4, and 5. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. Deuteronomy 5, 4, and 5. Let this fear of God, it's a good thing. Let it keep you from sin. Now you all know that there's verses all over the Bible that say the fear of the Lord is the it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge, right? The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And let me just say that while people will tell you today that the fear of the Lord just simply means that you need to respect and reverence God, I agree, that's part of it. But the fear of the Lord includes the fear of judgment. Amen? Amen. In fact, I will tell you that fear will keep you from doing a lot of dumb things. Now, you're driving in your car, and maybe you're exceeding the speed limit, and all of a sudden you see an officer representing the law nearby. What do you normally do? You slow down. Why? For fear of getting a ticket, and then having to explain the ticket to your significant other, in most of your cases, right? What were you doing? What were you thinking, right? Just that car alone, or the siren, or the lights is enough. That's what Sinai is intended to do. It's to show you your need for mediation or the gospel, but also to keep you from sinning against this holy God because he is holy and he's not to be trifled with. And so the fear of the Lord can be a good thing, keeping you from sin. Job 28, 28 says, and to man, God says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28 Proverbs 16, 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Just in case you thought it was just an Old Testament teaching, listen to this. Acts 9, 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? You go on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The two are not mutually exclusive. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking to the Corinthian congregation, and he says these words. He says, therefore also we have as our ambition, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 puts it this way. 
Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. And Ephesians 5, 21 says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's a place, even in the new covenant, for the fear of God, for a healthy fear of not wanting to sin against God or uh, somehow bring his name down or misrepresent him. That's still very real, though we are forgiven in Christ. And so the people, understanding all these levels and probably more than we could say here, they stood at a distance. Now there's the second time we see it, standing afar off while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Now they were standing back, and this is a picture of man without mediation. He must stand afar off from God. Uh, Our sin is a separator, Isaiah 59. Our sin is what separates us from God. I remember way back in the day, we used to have these gospel tracts that we'd give out, and it would show man on one side, sinful man over here, and a holy God over here, and it would show this incredibly uh, just wide chasm that separated the two. And the question would be, how can sinful man cross over and know God? How can he be acceptable in God's sight? And oftentimes these tracts would depict a cross. And a cross would become the bridge between sinful man and a holy God. And that's where we're headed right now. But the people are standing afar off. And they, they watch Moses go up into this thick cloud where God is to speak to God and to, to represent the people to God and God to the people. That's what a mediator does. He represents In this case, God to the people, you speak to us, and the people to God. And Moses is in that mediating role. If any of you ever got in trouble with the law, one of the first phone calls you'd probably make is to what? A lawyer. Why? Because you would sense that you need mediation before the judge. Someone who knows the law. Someone who can stand between you and potential judgment, etc. This is the idea. And so the Lord descends. He comes down on Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up. And the Lord says to Moses these words, 22. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen, they experienced all of these sights and sounds. The Lord thundered the commandments from the, from the mountain. You've, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Brethren, God has spoken. In the very history in which we are embedded, God spoke in various ways through different prophets in various ways in various times. But in these last days, Hebrews 1-2, he has spoken to us through who? Through his son. Through whom he made the world. And Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus Christ holds all things together by the word of his power. When people encountered the Christ, what did they say about him? Never did a man speak like this man speaks, right? His sermons were, people were hanging on his every word. He spoke the words of life. The disciples said, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? His enemies, each time they tried to trap him somehow, you know, in a sneaky way, he never allowed it to happen. He always overcame their so-called tests. Jesus Christ is the voice of God in a body, in the incarnation. If you want to know what God is like, read Matthew, read Mark, 
read Luke and read John. Have you read them? That's, that's the minimum that a believer should have a good grasp on. Well, what does God say? How did God speak? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why do you say, show us the Father? I'm showing you the Father, amen? And so Jesus came and he lived and he preached and he died in the very history in which we are embedded and rose again from the dead. And God says, I want you uh, to tell the people to remember this day. Look at 23. And then he warns them, you shall not make other gods, repeating essentially the first couple of commands, besides or along with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Now we should note that silver and gold is mentioned. Now this isn't the only thing that the ancient uh, pagans would make idols out of, but we do know that silver and gold are prominent among the ancient deities. And uh, Jesus put it this way, you can't serve God and mammon, mammon was an ancient god, by the way, translated money. I mean, if you think that idolatry is just an Old Testament phenomenon, just look at how many people have money as their God. Amen? I think that was the Lord just affirming that point right there. (laughs) Amen? Silver and gold, man. Now, the problem is not money. The problem is the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. When you have money where it belongs, that's not the issue. But here you have all of these gods and goddesses that emerged in the land of Canaan where the Israelites were headed and God has to rewarn the people. Do you see who I am? If you think that you could take a tool and fashion uh, a god out of gold or silver or uh, stones or whatever, just remember who I am. That's not who I am. Don't be making yourselves images like that because just remember Sinai, amen? Then then it would be ridiculous to make any sort of statue that you would bow down to or to make a God and make sure it didn't fall over on a windy day or, you know, just in case the earth quaked a little bit. Got to make sure my God's okay, right? No, 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 no. God's saying that's why you need to know by comparison these gods are nothing, The Bible will go on to say, if there's anything behind an idol, it's demonic. But don't make an idol for yourselves. Notice the idea of yourselves. You know, Walter Martin put it in his great style. He said, more people than you can shake a stick at, shave their God every morning. And not to leave the ladies out, curl her hair. Self-idolatry has permeated the West. Everything's about self today. Our idols are looking back at us in the mirror, brethren. And this is the issue. Not to mention all the other things that come at us. And God will tell his people later in Jeremiah, my people have forgotten me. Jeremiah 18, 15. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways from the ancient paths to walk in bypaths, not on a highway. My people don't remember Sinai. They don't remember who I am. How could they ever think 
that making something with a tool would, by comparison, have anything close to me. Yet, in a uh, just, uh, what, 10 chapters from now, 12 chapters from now, they're going to make a golden calf and start worshiping it. What is wrong with them? But then again, it's not hard for us to leave church and then have idols in our lives. It can be very sneaky, right? How this all works, especially in Western culture. So the warning, the remembrance, the sense of the need of mediation ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. And then, something interesting, God says, you shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings. Please note this if you mark your Bible. Two offerings here. Your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now, isn't it interesting that as we see this amazing scene and the people are stepping back, the need for mediation, all of a sudden an altar of sacrifice is introduced. We say, why? Because the need for sacrifice is essential to this picture. Because without the shedding of blood, there is... No forgiveness of sin. You say, well, how does this work and why an altar and why this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Here's why. Because God is so holy, think of the mountain, think of Sinai, that he must judge sin. And if he judges by his 10 commandments, everybody's in trouble, right? So what does, what does God do to make man right with him so he can actually approach God and have a relationship with God. Well, his sin must be atoned for. His sin is the separator, right? And so all of a sudden an altar is introduced. And if you want a simple definition of an altar, an altar is a place for sacrifice. An altar is a place of slaughter, literally, but we could say a place of sacrifice. So an altar is introduced with two different offerings. The first one is known as a whole burnt offering. It's uh, captured in the word hola, which in Spanish means hello. Uh, has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I thought you might meet, need just a little levity right now. So it's not that when you did the sacrifice, you said hola or anything like that. But anyway, so the Hebrew word for altar, mizbach, the place of sacrifice or slaughter, and then two offerings, the burnt offering where the animal, let me just paint the picture for you. So the, we're about to study the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. The tabernacle was the tent that Moses was instructed to make, and then there were pieces of furnishing within the tent or the tabernacle. The first piece, the first thing that you would run into when you came through the single entrance into the tabernacle was called the place, the altar of burnt sacrifice or the altar to slaughter. You could not, as a lay person, that's as far as you could go. Only the priest could move beyond that. Without a sacrifice, you can't go into the holy place. You can't go into the holy of holies. You can't move beyond into the sweetness of the presence of God. Now we come into the holy of holies How? by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil of his flesh. But in the Old Testament picture, there's a need for an animal to die. Why? Well, if you read 
Leviticus 1, you'll get a whole treatment on burnt offering. And I would encourage you to do this. And if you read Leviticus 3, you'll get a whole treatment on peace offerings. The only difference between a burnt offering and a peace offering is simply this. The burnt offering, when the animal was killed, the whole animal was consumed by fire. In the peace offering, parts of the animal could be eaten. Only the fat was consumed by fire. And if you want to get into this, if you want to brave Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, and you should, it's not that hard to, to read and get the concepts. This is where it's laid out. So the offerer comes. The person comes. Let's just say Michael approaches the tabernacle, which we will see later. And I come with a, a lamb without spot or without defect, a one-year-old male. And I come, and what I would do is I would lay my hands on the head of the animal, and I would confess my sins. And I would say, oh, Lord, please forgive me for A, B, C. And I would name my sins. And then the priest would take that animal, and some of you, this is going to help your diet, slit the throat of the animal. The blood would be taken and sprinkled on the side of the altar. Then the animal would be placed on top of what we might see as like a place of barbecue, literally. And it would be burned up in, with coals and fire and the smoke would ascend to God. And here's the repetition of a phrase in Leviticus 1 and 3. As a sweet smelling aroma up to God. Now, some wonder what's happening as one lays their hands on the head of, let's say, a lamb. Is there a transference of sin from that individual to that animal? I don't think necessarily. I think it's more symbolic because there's a whole treatment on this in the book of Hebrews, especially reading chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, and here's what you're going to find. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do what? To take away sin. There was only a temporary appeasement or atonement or covering, if you will, but not a full cleansing because the moment you sinned again, you were right back in the same spot. But the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that by one offering, Jesus Christ has perfected us for all time by his one sacrifice. So there's no need for a repetition of offering over and over and over and over again. But here, when someone laid their hands on the animal, the innocent animal dies and the blood is shed and now that person has atonement for their sin. All of this ultimately pointing to the final sacrifice in Christ where from the cross he says, it is finished, which means what? Paid in full. Now we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. There's no need for that. It's been done. Jesus fulfills that. So you might say, well, then what is the New Testament Christian's obligation? Is there any sacrifice we make now? Yep. You know what it is? You come to an altar of prayer or an altar of surrender, and you know what you do? You now become a living, what? Sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to him which is your reasonable service in view of what? His great mercy. So when I come to the altar now, you know what I present? Not an animal for sacrifice. I come to present myself, or if you want the image, I come to die, to Michael, to the flesh, to the world, etc. I come to present myself as a living sacrifice. John Corson put it this way, the problem with living sacrifices, 
as opposed to dead ones is we tend to squirm off the altar. <laughs> we start looking around. Do I really want to be here? Do you know, <laughs> right? We all know what a struggle it is to keep representing ourselves and dying to the flesh, but that is the battle in the new covenant. And so this is the image. And God gives a little bit more detail through Moses. He says, if you make an altar 25 of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. This is one author. He says, making altars out of square blocks, building step pyramids, worshiping naked. These are practices which were coming out of Mesopotamia. When the Canaanites worshiped idols, they did it on altars of finished stone, built high for show, as archaeologists have discovered. We also know that Canaanite worship was obscene, combining idolatry with ritual prostitution. We're going to see this The Israelites are actually going to do this later. And other forms of indecent exposure, hence the idea of not building steps, uh, not exposing yourself. The idea here is worship, if if you're taking notes, worship is to be filled with simplicity and purity. You see what just happened during this time of worship? It was simple and it was pure. Now, there's going to be a place for a grand edifice. Solomon's going to build a grand temple to the Lord. And there's place for extravagance in the Christian life, right? Unto God, to give extravagantly to his kingdom, to worship him, etc. But here, God says, I want you to be distinct from that world that makes it all about show. It's all about how the stones are cut. It's all about how high the, the place of sacrifice is. None of that with me. You keep it simple and you make it pure. And if you want to just simplify your Christian life, those are two words for all of us today, amen? Lord, just help me to worship you in simplicity and truth, in purity and in truth. I want to walk with you today. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow because I can't control that. I can't change yesterday. But I'm going to be a living sacrifice. And someone came up to me after second service and said, you know, in these two offerings, the first one, the Ola, the second one is the Shalomim. It's from the word Shalom. It's a peace offering. And she said something like this. She said, you know, kind of what I saw in my heart was the, the burnt offering gives me forgiveness. And then the peace offering, it's like I, I receive this peace back, this beautiful fellowship with God. And I'm like, amen. In fact, when we pray and we seek God with our problems, we're promised a peace that passes understanding, a peace offering, if you will. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see in these images, sweet-smelling aroma, all the pictures combine. But simplicity and purity is a beautiful way to go about your life, to worship God. And so um, much more will be said about the furnishings and the tabernacle as we move on in Exodus. But uh, this is the amazing picture that emerges here. Needs for mediation, need for an altar. And then God gives the warning about, you know, approaching him in the right way. Finally saying that your nakedness may not be exposed on on that altar. And here's the, the beauty of the gospel. I'm found in him. I'm not going to be exposed on that day. Not all of my sin is going to be exposed, my nakedness, if you will, on that day because I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. 
I have a righteousness now credited to my account simply by my faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness which comes not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. Two New Testament passages and we're done. First, turning over so we can get our title together to the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then we'll get ready to take the Lord's Supper together. Romans chapter 10. Now, Paul's giving a whole treatment on the incredible riches of the gospel, and he's bemoaning the fact that his own people, that is the children of Israel that we're, we're studying in Exodus, they don't get it. Many of them don't understand. He says, Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire... Romans 10.1, and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for what? For righteousness to everyone who does what? Who believes. Christ is the end of the law. To be right in God's sight, if you simply will place your faith in Jesus. Over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's talking about Jew and Gentile becoming one in Christ, one new man, one new community. And uh, he picks up some of these themes of the different offerings and so forth with these words, Ephesians 2.12. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ when you were an unbeliever. You were excluded, Ephesians 2.12, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, if I could put it this way, standing at a distance have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our shalom. He is our peace offering, if you like. There you have the, both the idea of burnt offering and peace offering right in the text. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What was the problem? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances that in himself he, he might make the two into one new man or community, thus establishing shalom or peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity or what separates. And Hebrews 13.10 puts it this way. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, but we go out to Christ. He is our altar, if you will. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the end of Exodus 20, the awesome display of your presence on Sinai. In an earlier study, we saw some of the possible locations and some of the things that are burnt around those locations, kind of really interesting, but Ultimately, Lord, we know you came down and we know you're coming again. You're going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God to rescue your people, but to judge the world. Another day is coming much like this day. And in that day, I want to be found in him. I want to have an altar, not having the righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but our righteousness on the basis of faith. That's what Paul discovered. That's what we've discovered, Lord. All of us who are believers, we come to your altar and find a sacrifice has been paid in full at the cross and through the resurrection. We find the good news of the gospel. We find the hope that not only we've embraced, but we can proclaim from the housetops. We find the need of mediation. We find Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus capturing words from Philemon, verse 18. Father, charge it to my account. I will take your wrath. I will be the lamb. I will shed my blood from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? But underneath the crimson flow is a, the, the reality of a Savior who by his blood, by his death, saves to the uttermost those who are perishing. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Now, would you just take a moment if you've not met Jesus Christ, if you've not understood your need for the gospel, maybe you thought being a Christian was about moralism or good works. It's not. Your behavior is important, but it won't save you. What saves you is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Cry out to him, Lord, would you save me? I can see how sin separates I can see how it makes me stand at a distance, places me under your wrath. But thank you that Jesus took my punishment at the cross. Pray it if it's you. Thank you that Jesus, you laid down your life for me. Put your love on display at that terrible death instrument. I repent. I trust your finished work at that cross, your resurrection from the dead. Be my king, be my God, be my Lord, be my savior. If you're a prodigal, maybe you're watching this right now via live stream or later you'll watch this and you've been wandering, come to your senses and come home. Come through the cross. Come back to the Father through the Son. He's faithful to forgive. And for all of you who are dear saints, I pray that you would be encouraged by the hope of this great gospel that we all know we've all embraced we all revel in, we all give thanks. Lord, build up our faith in these tumultuous times in which we live. Times of questions and, you know, where's the world going? Well, we know where it's going, Lord. Thank you that you're sovereign. Help us to trust in you and to be ambassadors of the gospel until you come for us or we go to be with you.